Hey, this is Mark Altman of Inglorious Treks, Prince in the 430 movie. And if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78. Available now by subscribing at trexpressplus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. By your command, here's a sneak peek. And you know, you're talking, I love how, you know, because you've gone on to do work outside of acting with veterans. And I love, you give these speeches about what America means. You know, and how exciting you have that great moment where you're talking about how exciting it is to be in this seat of our, our democracy. And it's, it's great. Well, that's what I was going to say when Vinny on, on day one. And by the way, I think that that arc is the most underrated arc. A hundred percent. You know, totally. Cannell totally. even said, oh, oh Cannell didn't, even though he pretty much left us alone, he still had his opinion, of course. It's still his company. And uh, he thought that, that arc was a little bit too cerebral and confusing, and we vehemently disagreed with him. I said, no, you know, the whole audience can go a few minutes without seeing something blow up, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, yep. might, and especially by that time, we pretty much had our core audience. So they mm -hmm. were with us. By the time day one showed up, they were on board. The ones that were going to be on board were already. So, but I... The way the thing I loved about that one of the things I loved about that arc is when yeah on day one when Vinny goes and he says Big Pike pull over the car and you see the Capitol and you see the and Vinny is so sweet almost in his naivete mm -hmm. that's great about, like, oh I love this town you know this is what it's yep. all about and yeah. then as it turns out all these people are want to chop his head off are conspiring against him Absolutely. and that was so wonderful is that this could go, you mentioned it before, different genres, that there's the James Bond arc, there's the Godfather, there's this wonderful thing with his mother who who he can't tell that he's an undercover agent, she thinks he's a hood, and now you're doing Seven Days in May and a conspiracy <laughs> thriller. Yeah, yeah. And where the seed of that idea came from was my idea of counterfeiting. As one crime I've always been fascinated by, and mm -hmm. that is, and I always thought, even as a kid, I thought, wouldn't it be smarter not to counterfeit your own currency, but counterfeit some foreign currency mm -hmm. and try to get it, you know, on the foreign exchange, however that works, you know? But that was where the seed of the idea came from, was my fascination with counterfeiting. Non-stable destabilization. Course, <laughs> right, well, that then then once uh, David and Steve got on board, then they expanded it to the yeah the non-genuine destabilization and all that. <laughs> but, um. So yeah, and that's the thing that Cannell had a hard time with. And I said, no, it's fine when they're in that in that one war room where they have the spray paint cannon or explaining all the steps of what's going on. I had no problem with that. I thought it was great. I thought it was fascinating. What yeah. they, what Steve and, and David came up with. Oh yes. So yeah, I, that's that's one of the most, probably the most underrated arc. Absolutely. Oh, and, and Norman Lloyd is a Hollywood legend. He was a treasure. Oh yeah, I mean, come on. And damn, he was only like 104, 105. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but everybody's All great right. now. When David Spielberg gets, uh, you know, basically. Um, Set up by Tracy Lords, and I mean, it's just yeah. so much great, juicy stuff in that. Oh, there, there really is. I, I tell you, I when we talk about this stuff, I just feel so grateful that I was able to do it. Look, you know, 
I would have loved to have not gotten hurt and been able to continue my career and all that. But things happen in life. What are you going to do? But the fact that I was able to do that at all, and here we are over 30 years later, 30 throughout the yeah. third of a century later, and we're still talking about it. You know, I'm, I'm going to do the Lou Gehrig thing here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> On the face of the earth. Uh, and I really okay. do feel that way. So subscribe today at TrexpressPlus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck 78. Fire the Rockets. Get ready. This summer, the Inglorious Live Tour continues. I am ready. Trex- Are you so ready? ready? <laughs> Are you sure you're ready? Well, we're coming to a city near you. Don't miss Ashley Edward Miller, Darren Docterman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, as we descend on San Diego Comic-Con, July 20th to 23rd. Oh Galaxy Con, Raleigh, 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 Raleigh North Carolina, Raleigh. in uh, July 27th through July 30th. Then we're going to be getting lucky in Las Vegas oh for my. the Creation 57-year mission convention on August 3rd to the 6th. And then finally, we're back in Austin, Texas, Labor Day weekend for yet another great Galaxy Con. So for more details, go to ComicCon.org, GalaxyCon.com, and CreationEnt.com. And we'll see you out there on the final frontier or in Raleigh. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie. And I want you to join Ron Howard, Cameron Crowe, Scott Mance, Roger Corman, William Shatner, Paul Schrader, Nicholas Meyer, Henry Winkler, Amy Heckerling, Dee Wallace, Leonard Moulton, and over 100 plus stars, directors, writers, critics, and studio executives on our epic four-week look at the greatest geek year ever, 1982, including deep dives into E.T., Poltergeist, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Conan the Barbarian, My Favorite Year, Diner, Fast Time. Times at Ridgemont High, The Beastmaster, Blade Runner, and of course, Megaforce. Greatest Geek Year Ever premieres Saturday, July 8th on The CW, or watch a special encore presentation on Tuesday, July 11th, or anytime on The CW app. Remember, the good guys always win, even in the 80s. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And this is Ashley Miller. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And today we're going to party like it's 1982. I think that's what Prince really meant when he said that's what he really meant. Yeah. Because Space 1999, come on, who wants to party like it's Space 1999? Not a lot of party like it's 1982. And, you know, look, everyone knows that I've been very, very. Uh, I like to promote my books on the show because they're great. Uh, but I got something really special to talk about um, this week uh, because premiering on the CW here in the United States on um, uh, the Saturday, July eleventh. Uh, uh, sorry, July eighth is uh, going to be. It repeats on July eleventh. Is uh, our great documentary, greatest geek year ever. It's a tribute to the year of 1982, but first, I'm really thrilled to say we have several uh, of the backers from our original Kickstarter who are joining us today uh, to talk about their favorite 1982 movies. They're also longtime fans of the show, so it's exciting to have them. We've never had 
fans of the show on before, unless you count Steve Asbell. Um, <laughs> and uh, at the very end, we're going to be letting you know about a very exciting Trexperts project that's coming to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the filming of The Cage. So we'll tell you about that at the very end. But before that, we're going to be talking about The Greatest Geek Year Ever. It's a tribute to the legendary movie-going year of 1982. Some of the films, E.T., 48 Hours, Rocky Three. First Blood, Blade Runner, John Carpenter's The Thing, little movie you may have heard of called Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Poltergeist, Creepshow, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, The Dark Crystal, Tron, Conan, Paul Schrader's Cat People. I only say Paul Schrader's so you don't think it's something else. The Road Warrior <laughs> and The Beastmaster, Sword and a Sorcerer, Night Shift, and of course, Megaforce. So amazing year, amazing year. It was the year of Thriller, uh, Prince's 1999. Rio from Duran Duran, Vacation from the Go-Go's. One of the top 10 songs of the year was I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett. Don't You Want Me by the Human League. It's the uh, Darren's uh, Darren's uh, team music that follows him around. Tainted Love by Soft Cell. Um, Jack and Diane from before he was John Cougar Mellencamp, he was John Cougar. And uh, it was also the year that uh, Epcot opened at Disney. Uh, long before uh, uh, DeSantis tried to close it down. the uh, It was the year of the first con uh, compact disc. And do you know what Time's Man of the Year was, Darren? Uh, was it the computer? It was computer. <laughs> it was the computer. Hello, I'm computer. holding up a mouse. <laughs> yeah, it was the computer. That's it. Was a very uh, they were very ahead of their time picking you, that. You caught me off guard. I wasn't expecting that question. Well, but, speak but I knew it. Speaking of computers, you know what came out that year? The Commodore 64. Did any of you have a Commodore 64? No. Negative. Okay. Well, negatory. DRS 80. I uh before we, we talk anymore, I gotta introduce you to our guest. First of all, it's a longtime fan of the show. We're a big, big fan. He's very active on social. Um, he is a great guy. Uh during the pandemic. Um he 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 we first of all, we gotta thank you. Dr. Brian Goldman. He this is a guy who has given so much for the betterment of humanity. He lives the Star Trek ideals. I mean, I, I, he was working 24-7, seven days a week uh, in the hospital up uh, in the Great White North during this pandemic. The things you went through, and and personally with your family, but uh, and with so much that you did for people. And, you know, we celebrate McCoy and Bashir and, and Crusher and even Pulaski, if you're Darren. And Dr. Dr. Brian, Brian Goldman, is the real-life uh, epitomization of all these people. So welcome to the show, Brian. Mark, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Really, it's a thrill. It's a great thrill. And uh, shout-out to my buddy, Dr. Ken Milne, who I'm sure is very envious as he listens to us right now. Uh, no question that uh, Dee Forrest Kelly was my role model and one of the key reasons why I went into medicine. Yeah, and I got to say about your friend, Dr. Ken, we love that maple whiskey, but he's gotten a lot of mileage out of it. Okay, <laughs> it, it lasted, you know, not very long, no. and we were very appreciative. But about you know, we could stop talking about it now. It's time to get us well, something else. You know, I have to tell you that the um, that maple whiskey was actually a critical component in the process that uh, that gave us the title of our uh, subscriber-only podcast, X78. Right. I don't know that we would it have come the lubricant. up with it. Yes, exactly. Because so we were sitting in Vegas last year deciding that we were going to be launching for the new season the uh, uh, the subscription-only Trexperts Plus, 
and we came up with Transverse Plus. That was pretty easy. But um, we we needed a name for the um, for the new podcast that we would offer to the Transverse Plus subscribers. And we were drinking our knocking back our maple whiskey in Darren's room at the Bally's. And I, I let me tell you, we would never stay there if the convention had been there because it's a crappy hotel. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so, um, but it was better at, than the Rio. The drunker yeah. we got, the better uh, the better the titles we came up with. And I believe it was Darren who came... No, Ashley's... I think it was Ashley. Ashley came up with the Deck 78. Uh, and it stuck because there were a lot of really bad ideas we came up with before that. Okay. I wouldn't take but, credit for another man's work. But Ashley now I want to introduce you to another 1982 backer and longtime uh, fan of the show as well. And we're delighted to have Julian Mushkin here with us. Julian, welcome. Hi, uh, it, this is indeed a thrill. I, I, as soon as I saw that uh, there was an opportunity to do this on one of the tiers of the Kickstarter, I was like, I'm in. I, you know, despite, you know, I, I was like, I was going to donate anyway. But, you know, this was the thing because I have loved listening to the program uh, ever since I had discovered Trexperts, found it, and, and I just have loved it. And um, it's like, it's like, Old friends. It's like it's like a group of friends. You know, you guys are friends, but I feel like it reminds me of of when I was hanging out with my friends uh, in high school and college. Uh, the same type of conversations, same type of interests. Um, so uh, it, it's just been awesome, and uh, I'm glad I could join you. That's Thank cool. you. Well, the problem is we're still having these conversations 40 years later. So I think you're much cooler than we are for that uh, because the conversation we were having in high school, we're still having four decades later. So uh, anyway, but thank you. And thank you for your support of uh, the 82 doc. And uh, it, it really, I mean, they call it kickstarting. It really did kickstart it. Obviously, you know, having, uh, this was during the height of the um, pandemic and, uh, you know, we were lucky because if it hadn't been for everybody jumping on board to help, we would have never gotten it out of the gate. Um, I got to ask you now. This is important. This is you're gonna. This is for Darren and Ashley, and then you guys can weigh in. 1982, we lost a lot of legendary people. I want to know what was what hit you the hardest. Are you ready for the list? Yes. Okay. I was born. We lost ready the following people: Victor Bono, Paul Lind, John Belushi, Philip K. Dick. Thelonious Monk, Ayn Rand, Ingrid Bergman, the luminous Ingrid Bergman, Marty Feldman, we know Alan Spencer's pick, and Lee Strasberg. Darren, who hit you the hardest? You know, I don't think any of them hit me that hard then. I think in retrospect, it it hits me hard, probably for all of them. Because, uh, of course, you know, uh, how can we live without the amazing Victor Buono in King Tut and Beneath the Planet of the Apes? Uh, yep. There's just no matching his uh, presence and his, uh, uh, dare I say, girth. Um, have you ever confused him with Severin Darden? I have never confused him with Severin okay. Darden. Just wondering, I have. Well, I how did. dare you? <laughs> um, of course, Paul Lind is unmatched as the center square on uh, uh, the wonderful uh, Hollywood squares. Um, and, uh, you know, he was just uh, an amazing wit and uh, and uh, personality. And you don't get that kind of uh, uh, actor or uh, performer anymore. You know, he was one of a kind. Um, I prefer to think of him from Lidsville, personally. Okay, he wasn't in Lidsville. Oh, thinking, no, that was Charles Nelson Riley. That's Nelson why, Nelson yeah, you confused him with Victor Bono? 
I get um, confused with Pete Potwistle. Okay. I, I think of Poland as, I mean, obviously the center square. And uh, I believe he was the uh, the the uncle on uh, on Bewitched. Mm-hmm. And right. um, he was Templeton the Rat. That's correct. Charlotte's Web. That's correct. Uh, no, that was the best. He was so yeah. great in that. One thousand percent, he was but awesome. He, he, was, he, he played he played the same character in two different episodes of I Dream of Genie that had the same script. They did the episode twice: one for black and white, one for color, and he played the same role twice. The um, episode so nice, they shot it twice. That's right. Uh, but of course, he was also in Bye Bye Birdie. Uh, he was also in uh, the. He played Grand Moff Tarkin in the Donnie and Marie Star Wars special. Oh, that's you know? right. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see like the CGI recreation of him, like yeah, in, right. in, in, in Rogue, Rogue right. One. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, wow. he he was uh, he was something else. That's for sure. He indeed, indeed, and uh, okay. So, um, what about uh, what about you guys? Anybody hit you particularly hard? Philip because you know, Lee Strasberg was dying of the same heart attack for 30 years. For 20 years, yeah. 20 years, yeah. I'd have to say Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Mm, good choice. Yeah, it's so sad that he did not get to see Blade Runner after, well, he you know. He did. He got to see it in, in an early cut. version. He didn't yeah. get to see the finished version. And I think he, you know, that would have been, you know, talk about a victory lap. Well, the famous, the famous uh, quote was, how did you look into my mind? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Get out of and my that's mind. That's kind of amazing. Yeah. And what a mind it was, Philip K. Dick. Uh, what about you, Julian? Any of those people hit you pretty hard then or now? Well, actually, at, at the time, um, Jim Belushi was the one that I remember of those names that really. John, John Belushi. John, John, John Belushi. Belushi. I'm sorry. Yeah. John <laughs> yeah. Belushi. I make that time, mistake too. Don't worry about it. Because he was. He was making a kind of a turn in the movies, you know, Continental mm-hmm. Divide and stuff had come out and he was trying to go a little bit more serious um, to stretch his legs. Um, and, you know, so it's a we didn't get to see exactly, you know, how far he could go with his yep. acting. But uh, of the other names, you know, um, Ingrid Bergman, um, I, that's she did so much for, you know, she was wonderful. Just such a wonderful actress and and uh, luminous, one might say. And, yes, uh, indeed, one <laughs> might say that. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's, when it's, I look at the list and I go, "Wow, that you know that that was too bad." Also, yeah, yeah, no, those it's it's all 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 great great losses. Um, King Vidor also died that year, which was mm. all, all, but. Um, which now, of course put which of course put Prince Vidor in charge. Yes. <laughs> we all know how that worked out. <laughs> yeah, he didn't direct any great movies, Prince no. Prince Vidor. So in arcades, Jackson and Pole Position came out that year. But of course, in addition to arcades, where it was at was it kind of at home because people were playing uh uh Atari twenty six hundred. The ColecoVision came out that year. This is it. We're going in after Zaxxon. The most powerful force in space. It's going to try to blow us away. Close. Gotta stay low. Zaxxon, the three-dimensional arcade sensation, is now a home video sensation. Now to invade those enemy fighters and go face-to-face with Zaxxon itself. No one has ever gotten this far before. Attack! Play Zaxxon on your ColecoVision, Atari VCS, or in television video game system. Zaxxon, it'll blow you away. Arthur? In television... 
So Empire Strikes Back came out on Parker Brothers. Yara's Revenge came out for Atari. And Pitfall came out for everybody. It was it was a platform agnostic. This was a new thing. Uh, Activision put out Pitfall. So um, any I thoughts? Think, about- I think 1982 also brought the uh, Star Wars arcade game, the Vector game. You're right. correct, sir. Yeah. Uh, so any uh, thoughts about... Uh, any thoughts about video games that year? What, I, did you guys have a console? Oh, yeah. I, we, we never had a console in my house. Mm. I, I had an Intellivision. I uh, actually started adapting uh, Pitfall immediately the, uh, you know, into, a, uh, into a feature film and a television series <laughs> serialized for Netflix. Way back then, I saw it all coming. You knew. Um, I knew. I knew that video adaptation, video game adaptation was the thing. Um, and so I just found it very exciting. Actually, ironically... Um, one of my favorite games on the Intellivision. I don't remember if this came out in 1982 on the Intellivision or not, but uh, but the Tron game mm-hmm. on Intellivision was awesome. Speaking of video games that are movies that become video games, it gets so meta that yeah. my head starts to throb. But uh, but I love that game, man. Yeah. No, well, and we we talk about the uh, the video games in the documentary. Um, which premieres on July 8th on the CW. And I, I, that was a fun thing to get in there. We talked about the ill-fated E.T. video game, which, you know, obviously was a, a total disaster because they rushed it to market and yeah. uh, it was not particularly beloved. Now, here are some of the books that came out that year. I want to know what your favorites are. Okay, The Color Purple, Schindler's mm-hmm. List, 2010, Odyssey 2, The Running Man, Life, the Universe, and Everything, Friday by Heinlein, The Mists of Avalon by Marion Zimmer Bradley, and one of the biggest bestsellers of the year, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche by the great Bruce Feirstein. Any 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 picks, guys? Julian? Friday. I remember yeah. reading Friday. I was a big Heinlein reader. Um, and uh, 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 the Hitchhiker's Guide you mentioned. Uh, which, which book was that? Life, the um, Universe, and Everything. The Douglas yeah. Adams book you mentioned. Yeah, yeah Life, the, the Universe, the and third, Everything. The third book. Because uh, I was big reading them. Yes. No. What about you, Ash? And twenty ten. Yeah. Yeah, twenty ten. Um, yep. That I was loved, a big deal. Twenty ten. I loved uh, Life, the Universe, and everything. But I would also have to go with Friday because that cover. Yes, I was going to say that. Burned <laughs> into my brain. That was look, man. I was eleven years old. Eleven and a half. Things were happening, and Friday. Thank God, it's Friday. I mean. <laughs> Do you know that was my first pitch meeting? I Julie Corman had the rights to Friday, and they they and and they asked me about coming in to pitch, um, pitch pitch it as a feature to them, and that was this was before Free Enterprise, before um, we had sold our first Dan and I had sold the script to uh, DreamWorks before I'd done anything. I was just still just a journalist at the time, and that was the first pitch meeting was for Friday, and I love wow. that book. And you're right, I got that cover uh, burned in my brain. What about you, Doctor Brian? I'd have to say uh, 2010, that was a, a much anticipated book just, just because of 2001. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it was the, the greatest sequel in the world, but it was, you know, it certainly it was interesting to, to, to see what had happened to the characters since we last met them. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Schindler's List for me, Schindler's List was, was a very, very powerful book that became a very powerful film. 
directed by Steven Spielberg, who of course uh, directed a lot of the great geek films and and meddled. With yeah, some no, other, the the yeah. first episode of the of the documentary is the summer of Spielberg, so you can imagine what it covers. Darren, what about you? What what was your 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 pick for the book that or or books that resonate for you? Because I know you like quiche. I do too. So I think real men do eat quiche. Well, when I tried it, it was awful. So oh, I think that tells like you what kind of person I am. Uh, you know, uh, I like quiche. But um, no, I again, I I agree with 2010. It's uh, it's uh, you know, I read it complete cover to cover in like two days, and it was uh, it was great. And it's a much better sequel to the book than it is to the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's that's why yeah. I enjoyed it because I was a I was a super geek. I'd read the I'd read the 2001 book several times by that time, uh, and uh, I I absolutely loved the sequel, and which is why I was disappointed in the movie that came out in '84. Yeah, we should do that for Deck 78 one of these days, mm -hmm. uh, 2010, because I think it has an anniversary coming up. I remember uh, getting that from the uh, Sci-Fi Book Club. Remember the Sci-Fi Book Club? I got yeah, 2010 I from them. And I uh, loved the cover on it, the beautiful painting. Gorgeous, yeah. gorgeous. It was it was terrific. So anyway, so those are set the tone of the year of uh, 1982. But of course, what we're going to talk about are the incredible movies. Uh, but before we do that, this is something we we just didn't have the real estate for in the documentary. Despite you know four four one hour episodes, we were not able to include television, which had been part of my original intention. We're going to do TV too, but uh, it was just too big an undertaking, so we stuck to the movies pretty much. I'm going to ask you. Here are the, the TV shows that debuted in 1982. I want to ask you your favorite. St. Elsewhere, Cheers, Family Ties, Remington Steele, Knight Rider, Tales of the Gold Monkey, starring Darren's favorite actor, Stephen Collins. Stephen Collins. Bring Him Back Alive. Square Bruce Pegs. Star starring uh, Ashley's favorite actor, Merritt Buttrick. Powers of Matthew Starr with Judson Scott. Matt Houston with Sword and Sorcerer no, and Lee Horsley. Justin Scott was not in the powers. Of oh, Matt that was right. That was yes. the other one. Yeah, that was the Lou other Gossett one. That was Gossett Junior, I think, was actually that was the Phoenix. Lou Gossett Jr. and uh, oh yeah, and that other guy. All right. Okay. Yeah. Police Squad. Yep. The Great Police Squad, which inspired the Naked Gun movies, Fame, the TV series, mm -hmm. coming on the heels of Alan Parker's great movie, um, Family Ties. Sort of a, a show that really captured the 80s, like guys, Scooby and Scrappy Doo Hour, Scrappy oh, Doo. Um, and of course, and I'm so glad we kept this in the in the documentary, Mazes and Monsters with the great Tom Hanks, which was wow. a take on the satanic panic of the 80s. And uh, by Rona Jaffe, it's, it's a terrible, terrible TV movie with Tom Hanks and the late, great Murray Hamilton uh, in that as well. Um, so wow. what about TV? Was there something that you were tuning in every week, guys? Darren? Uh, you know, I, out of all those, I, I watched all of them at one point. Uh, but I, I think I, I really liked uh, Knight Rider, of course, because it was fun and Hasselhoff was, uh, was the man and, uh, and the car was pretty cool too. I know we have two and, and, friends. And, and, and I was a car. huge, I, and I was a huge fan of The Graduate. So naturally, uh, oh, the Daniels. voice of Kit, <laughs> William uh, uh, Daniels, was uh, a favorite because I, I kept imagining it say plastics. <laughs> Can you believe Dave Rogers has a freaking Knight Rider car? I don't believe it. I I've kid. never seen it, so it doesn't. Oh, exist. I've seen it. It's, it's awesome. I've ridden in it. I'm like, wow. Well, aren't you lucky? It's really cool. <laughs> You're like we one gotta, of the female guest stars every week. 
I too have ridden in a 1981 Pontiac. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, what about you? What was the, what was your 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 jam that year? Um, you know, uh, obviously, Night Riders are almost a gimme, but uh, to me, it's somewhere between Powers of Matthew Star, which I watched religiously, and I feel like that went a full season at the very least. Oh yeah, um, yeah, I loved that show. I feel like those Sunday nights, like that was my thing. Um, I desperately loved Tales of the Gold Monkey. And I was so disappointed when it got canceled because it was just so expensive. Um, but uh, it, I just wanted to live in that world. Uh, I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. Those were the adventures that I wanted to have. Uh, and uh, that just, you know, I, I still think about that show. I think like, you know, me and Kay Rendell may be like the president and vice president of that fan club. I was just glad to see Stephen Collins survive V'ger. And we yeah. were able to make oh, it. Oh, he back. wasn't missing anymore. He got he sent was. back in time to yeah. be a pilot. Yeah, he was an excellent pilot. The yeah. funny thing is, one, one of my one of my memories from 1982 is actually watching Tales from the Gold Monkey and making a copy of the TMP Admiral's pin with uh the gold foil from a Rolo candy. But of course you did. That's that's a memory <laughs> that I have. Well, I, I got to tell you guys, I would love to say T.J. Hooker was my favorite show. And I remember in TV Guide, as late as a week before it opening, they called it Hooker. They ended up changing the name at the last right. second because they, people <laughs> thought it was about uh, prostitutes. But of course, it was about William Shatner walking the beat. The, the biggest prostitute crime. of them all. That's right. <laughs> the what biggest whore. become text. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, of course, TJ Hooker continues to resonate uh, for people. And um, I enjoy going back and watching it occasionally. And and uh, um, the great uh, Shatner and uh, TJ Hooker. It was a big deal seeing Shatner. Because, of course, Barbary Coast had come out in the early 70s and bombed. So it was like, yeah. so this was Shatner's you know, big return to television is a, and it, it was a very successful show. And he, so it was like his big return. It was like, take that. I'm a star, baby. I'm a star. And, uh, but for me, I think as much as Remington Steel, I love Remington Steel because it yeah. had these noir illusions and, and Pierce uh, Brosnan and Stephanie Zimbalist were terrific. I, I think elsewhere to me, as much as I loved Hill Street Blues and I don't like hospital shows. Sorry, Brian. Um, but I loved St. Elsewhere. Um, one of its great ensemble cast, um, and uh, was really terrific. Was just on another level. Um, the, the great MTM shows, Bay City Blues, all no, maybe not Bay City Blues, but Hill Street Blues, Saint Elsewhere, and uh, really terrific. But I, I did enjoy Remington Steel immensely, and they had great episode titles. What about you, Brian? What was your your show back then? Well, I'm a doctor and I am going to say St. Elsewhere. Uh, <laughs> it was, you know, because, you know, it, Saint, the name St. Elsewhere came from anytime people told a story about their diagnostic triumph. Uh, if there was another hospital that made the wrong diagnosis, we called it Elsewhere General. So <laughs> St. Elsewhere, I know, I knew exactly what they were talking about, but the cast, Ed Begley Jr., Denzel Washington, Canada's own Howie Mandel, <laughs> and and remember the ending of that show. That was one of the first yep. series finales that 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 turned the show on its ear. Remember, it was all in a snow globe. Uh, yeah, of uh, course, the Elmer. boy with autism. It was all in his imagination, like Discovery. Yeah. And and I think you know the the ending to Newhart was was a direct rip off of that. Yeah, yeah, no, it was brilliant. And people still make allusions. You know that that ending, even though I think Saint Elsewhere 
people don't know and don't remember, people still remember that ending. They still talk about it. I, I think The Simpsons or somebody made a joke about it recently, you know, with uh, where it's all in the mind of this young boy, um, you know, all, the whole MTM universe. What about you, Julian? Which, which, what was your show that year? Well, my, you know, my, my sure watches every time they were on was Cheers and Knight Rider. Um, I just really loved the comedy that, that NBC was starting to line up with all their shows. And Cheers was one of those big ones. I loved it. Um, Knight Rider, because it had that, that sci-fi element and, you know, all the, the, the fast car and William Daniels' voice in the car. It was awesome. And, um, I also really liked Family Ties. Of course, a lot of that was because of Justine Bateman, but it was also really funny. <laughs> and um, Remington Steel was a big watch. Um, but you mentioned Mazes and Monsters, which um, I do remember watching. And, and I thought, if I remember co correctly, that some of that was filmed on location up in Washington State. I think because I lived in uh, Kitsap County in Washington State at the time uh, in Bremerton. And there was a big to-do about how this show was being filmed over in the town across the bay, Port Orchard. And so I, I remember watching that to, to see if we recognize any uh, location that they were shooting at. So just shout out to the old yeah. one. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, well, it, the, these were some of the things were happening in 1982. But obviously the big... You know, the reason we remember this year so fondly were the incredible, incredible films. I want to ask you guys, all of you, your favorite movie of 1982. And if it's Megaforce, we're done. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, Julian, why don't we start with you? What's your favorite movie in 1982? Oh, man. That's, that's tough. I got three top, you know, qualifiers in there. I got nope. The Wrath of Sophie's Khan, Choice. Blade you got to pick one. Yeah, the rest of them died. Yeah, I mean, if Meryl Streep could have to pick one of her kids to give to the Nazis, you could pick one movie. <laughs> it's got to be Blade Runner. I need your deck. This is a bad one, the worst yet. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants, three male, three female. They slaughtered 20... A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants. Manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. What's this? Roy Batty. Probably the leader. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Dr. Eldon Tyrell. I don't get it, Tyrell. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. I was looking for six replicants in a city of 106 million people. You ever see this girl, huh? Never seen a Buzzlove. What I didn't know was they were looking for me. Questions. I just do eyes. Just genetic design. Just eyes. Hello? 
I'm in a bar here now, down in the fourth sector. Why don't you come on down here and have a drink? That's not my kind of place. Time to die. If I didn't care. Okay, Blade Runner. I always go to Blade Runner. Uh, That's one I could watch over and over and over again. That's what your ex-wife called you, sushi. (laughs) So, okay, so Blade Runner, let's do a deep dive. Which version? Because 82 uh, it was the original theatrical. So that, but you know, if you had your choice, if you were on a desert island, right? Which version would? And don't say, oh, I want the the, the set, the Blu-ray that has all three of them. Yeah, say, you, you know, it's like which one do you want? The original, the director's cut, or the final edition? Uh, having seen all three, I, but, but because of when I first saw it, I'm I'm kind of. I, I still stay kind of with the uh, the theater the the first edition one yep. even even with the voiceover, um, I can watch it without the voiceover and that's fine. But given that Harrison and Ridley were having their uh, issues about was he or wasn't he a, a replicant, the first version almost you know is kind of definitive and said this is what it is and and that's all there is to it. Because of its neo noir noir style. I think the the voiceover is important, and it it makes it into one of those movies. And I think I love the voiceover, and I think taking it out was a mistake. I completely agree, and I also think that that for the most part, I I believe that people who think that their favorite is the final cut without the voiceover are all people who have watched the the theatrical cut enough that they can actually understand what the hell is going on in that story. And yeah. so they no longer need it. They remember it's in the back of their head, no explanation required, it's there. And so now that that track is just cut off. It's um, filled in I, already, yeah. Totally. And you know what? The theatrical version holds up. I, I showed it to Caden, my 13-year-old, um, and he loved it. Um, he didn't say, wow, Dad, that was great, except for all the Harrison Ford voiceover. <laughs> no, that was great. But he this did is... grab you by the head and say, I want more life, Father. <laughs> That's right. Except he didn't say Father. He said... <laughs> this is so weird because obviously the uh, uh, the final cut is the version that I would say a large majority of people prefer, certainly Ridley and everyone involved in making the movie. I agree with you guys. I prefer the theatrical version. And because it's something we actually get correctly. into. correctly. In- well, right thinking is uh, wrong thinking is punishment. But in the documentary, we actually spend a lot of time talking about that because everyone just takes for granted. Oh, the the final version is the best, and I love that we actually have different people's perspectives and a lot of people saying that the original theatrical noir version is 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 the best version. So uh, fa- fascinating. What about you, Brian? Are you going to be uh, uh, <laughs> are you going to be the spoiler? Well, you know, I I have an emotional attachment to the Wrath of Khan. When Wrath of Khan came out, it hit all the buttons that I wanted. It had the comedy. What about my performance? I'm not a drama critic. It had the cheer moments. I don't like to lose. The heart and the emotion. Don't grieve him. That to me was a completely fulfilling 
Star Trek movie. Thematically, it's really, really sophisticated stuff. Most of that, if not all of that, comes from Nick Meyer's relative indifference to Star Trek. I think he was able to step outside of the mystique and tell a story that worked by itself. Or as Robert Bresson said, my job is not to find what the public want and give it to them. My job is to make the public want what I want. If I listened to the public, Spock wouldn't have died. I can't second guess millions of people I never met. I take them out of it. My assumption is if I like it, other people will like it. It, it came at a time when we didn't know what was going to happen next. And, and, and of course, I have to say, I, I adore Star Trek The Motion Picture in a way I didn't back then. Thank you, Darren, for the work you've done. Uh, that's the movie that's going to be put into a time capsule. That's the one that's going to be sent, you know, in a, in a rocket ship to the stars so the people, oh, you represent Earth's best. Uh, it's, it's, it's the best, and and the and the special effects now explain so much and make make the film seamless. So I don't want to, but but back at that time, I'm I was I was an adult, I was sentient, and people were afraid of what was going to happen next with Star Trek, and and you know the curtain parted. We were in the biggest theater in Toronto, and the Star Trek fanfare came on, and everybody cheered. Mm -hmm. And we knew everything was going to be all right. And it was. And 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 Nicholas Meyer uh put together a wonderful film. And and you know, I have a strong emotional attachment to that because you know they were off the air for so many years. We didn't think we they'd ever come back, and then they did. And at that year they were better than ever. But I have to tell you, if there's another film, it's poltergeist. The strongest memory I have of that year was the second week of June. All of a sudden, there are two Steven Spielberg movies coming out within a week of each other. And the first one that came out was Poltergeist. Poltergeist was another film that was fanciful in nature with some scares built into it. Almost any age group could and did respond to. I think it was using the child. Hello? Being sucked into the television. She was so tuned in, she was truly an empath. And she was five. Mike Fenton and I were casting Poltergeist and E.T. almost simultaneously. So Heather O'Rourke initially came in for E.T. Stephen saw her at the commissary, and he's like, oh, you should really come in for, for Poltergeist. They're here. It went more for the heart than for the scare. Closet light! Closet light! My fault. My fault. Turn it on, Mommy! Toby really had a real sense of the horror, how to create the darker moods. But I think it was Stephen's influence to keep the family stuff really strong in the foreground. That was the key in all of Spielberg's movies, is that it really focused on the heart. Just sort of based the lifestyle on a lifestyle I'm familiar with, growing up in suburban Phoenix, Arizona, in tracked homes. Uh, with cul-de-sacs and two-car garages and this suburban lifestyle breeds a certain kind of individual. Static on a television still scares me and we all own TVs like that in 1982. I'm like, no, I'm not here for that. I don't understand the title. I still don't know what it means. What does Poltergeist mean? No one knew it was. We found a, we found a German book uh, that had, it was Poltergeist and uh, it was all in German. So, you know, but we knew it was about ghosts and we, showed that to Steve and he said, that's the title. 
he gave us a page. There were some bullet points that he wanted to hit. He wanted it to be a ghost story set in a middle-class housing development, that the ghost comes out of the TV. It had originally been written by Michael Grace and Mark Victor, but Steven Spielberg wrote the shooting draft. We only had six weeks to write the screenplay because we were set to go on strike. Film was in production, and we were striking our own movie. Steven sent a PA out to get us from the line. Because he said, I, I think you guys, when I see this, this, is a really cool scene. So we went in and we saw the room was on a gimbal and it turned around and all this. Steven is a strong producer. He was the guy who brought Toby Hooper in to direct. He was quite generous offering it to this guy who had only done the genius Texas Chainsaw and then eaten alive. It's very intimidating to have the world's most successful filmmaker producing your movie and kind of talking about how to do what he saw in his mind as a screenwriter. I was on the set of Poltergeist, and I watched it happen. This thing is growing out of her, and it's getting larger and larger, and the shoulders are almost going up to the ceiling. Just when you begin to see the fingers, it goes whoosh, breaks up like blowing a smoke ring apart in the air, and then goes shooting up into the area by location. He's an enthusiastic filmmaker. You know, he says, hey, what about a two-shot here? And we move in, and Toby was hesitant to come in and say, well, how about this? The collaboration between Toby and Stephen was very interesting. Stephen was there. He was there every day. And I think, truly, Stephen wanted to direct it himself, but because he was going to do E.T., he couldn't really do both, and his price was too high. He was getting ready to shoot E.T., and he was under a contractual obligation to Universal to make E.T., which meant he couldn't work on another film as a director. Toby, I think, respected Stephen and, you know, went along with it. Um, I'm sure it was very hard on Toby in many ways, because Stephen is a strong personality. I think the result really had both influences. Poltergeist does feel like a Spielberg film, but it is absolutely the lensing and framing of a Toby Hooper film. I'm embarrassed to say I cried it in Poltergeist. I remembered being so connected to Heather, but I had no idea that it would be that well received, not only critically, but at the box office. <laughs> I think that movie is the perfect metaphor for the summer of 1982 because Tangina says, This house has many hearts. And the summer of 1982 has many hearts. Mm. That film scared the shit out of me. Um, and, and, you know, the things that were the scariest, uh, the sound of, of Carol Ann's voice coming through the TV, I had nightmares about that. Mm. It was a beautifully done film about a theme that is so sustaining. You know, a graveyard that's been massacred for a, for a, uh, you know, that's been desecrated for a, uh, for for either an industrial park or for or for a, 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 a subdivision, and and so the themes are enduring. And then when you think about what happened to several cast members in the years following, starting with Dominique Dunn. I mean, it's just, it just, it just, it, it, both culturally and as a work of art, it just, it, 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 it stayed with me ever since. Okay. But which of those two are you handing over to the Nazis? Okay. <laughs> um, and which one are you keeping? I'm keeping the Wrath of you know, Khan. So there's some good movies on both sides. <laughs> I'm keeping the Wrath of Khan. Thank you for forcing me. Yes. Uh, I gotta I got to agree with you. I got to agree with you, though, about Poltergeist. One thing I love about Poltergeist is Jerry Goldsmith's amazing score. And the way that it works both in the big loud parts, but especially in the quiet parts. 
because that one scene where they're where they're you know searching for Carol Ann and and she starts talking on the TV and and Craig T Nelson comes up and and switches off the or switches on the lamp. It's such a beautiful moment and the emotion that wells up primarily because of Goldsmith's score is amazing. The thing yeah, for us I, that was so weird was um, James Karen. Uh, mm -hmm. was the Pathmark spokesman, which was That's a correct. supermarket chain in New York. So, you know, everyone knew his Pathmark commercials. So when he came out and he was the realtor, um, we knew we had to trust him because we trusted when it came to That's Pathmark. Right. And then when he says, you know, they, he Craig T. Nelson says, you 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 you, you moved the, the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies. No, not James Karen, not the Pathmark guy. <laughs> it's um, doubly and, hurtful for me because he was from the town that I was born in, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. He was, so, he was uh, double horror. Yeah, Ashley, I, you were gonna say? I, I love that movie, and it's I find it. And I, at the time, I even I found it scary, especially the stuff the clown. I mean, come on, man, who's not afraid of clowns? But I'll tell you what I think. Looking back on that movie, that made it special, and it's a little bit out of the box. But, Besides uh, Joe Beth Williams. Well, yes, actually, it was Joe Beth Williams, who's in the, the documentary where, and wonderful. Where uh, where Craig T. Nelson comes home and she says, "You have to see this." Right. And she takes the chair and it just moves, and she's like, "Yes." What because a great I've never scene. Seen that. Nobody had ever done that in a horror movie before. Yeah. You're like, yeah, there would be a time when you're like, wow, this is awesome. Yeah. Then it Such turned not off. Scene. Yeah. Such a Mark, scene. I can, you said we can ask questions. I got a question for you. Nope. <laughs> um, the, uh, and, you know, this may be a spoiler, I didn't mean it, you're not going to talk about it. <laughs> you, 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 you mentioned, you've mentioned in passing the summer of Spielberg. Yes. And that has to lead to some discussion of the controversies over who was the real director of Poltergeist. Yeah, and look, we talk about that. And it's interesting because even all these years later, you can't get a consensus. It depends who you ask because uh, 20 years ago, I did a, at this American Cinematheque, we did an anniversary of 1982. And Zelda Rubenstein said, I don't even know who Toby Hooper is. I was directed by Spielberg the whole time. I don't even remember Toby Hooper being on set. You ask Joe Beth Williams and she says they were both there but Toby was calling action and cut. And, um, but Spielberg was obviously very involved and, you know, was right behind him holding on to the chair. Um, you know, Mick Garris, who was the, he worked for Universal Marketing at the time. He also says, say similar, Toby was directing, it was his vision, but Spielberg was obviously very much, you know, and, and, and you could tell a sense that Spielberg wanted to direct it, but couldn't because he was doing, you know, prepping E.T., um, and, uh, so even today, there's no consensus on whether that movie was ghost directed by Spielberg or, um, or, or if it really is, um, you know, a Toby Hooper movie. I mean, I do think as much as I love Toby Hooper, I think Poltergeist is a much more sophisticated kind of. You know the framing, the lensing. Most of it is very Spielbergian. And well, yes, that's true. I mean, the the thing is though that you can't forget. Although, obviously, the DP has something to do with it on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But you know, Texas Chainsaw was was it was a groundbreaking film um, in terms of horror. Not just how, uh, not just in terms of the subject matter and the the tone of it and the intensity of it, but also how it was shot. There are there are shots in that movie that are just iconic um and you know you can't really take that away from him but what the and, and look i know some some people who are very uh kind of 
deep close into that whole situation who have their their own take on it. And as you say, it's like the truth is somewhere in between. But here's what it reminds me of the most. The olden days when movies were producers' movies Mm -hmm. and directors came in and just shot them. And in many ways, uh, you know, that's that's to me how I how I reconcile all of the conflicting stories about Poltergeist. That yes, Toby Hooper made that movie. He directed it. But Steven Spielberg was like an old time producer. He it was, was his a Selznick yeah. or in, um, well, how it's Wallace. In the same, it's in yeah. the same vein as uh, Richard Marquand directing Return of the Jedi. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> as opposed to Irving Kirshner, who really. Directed, directed. Yes, which is why director. Lucas didn't want somebody to direct Jedi. That's you right, know, yeah. he didn't like that he lost so much power to um, Kirshner. Um, There's other professors. You know, that's a whole nother. Control. That's a whole nother conversation. It's a whole nother I think, year. I think yeah, the whole. I think the other thing that we we get out of Poltergeist is the importance of character in horror. You re, it spends so much time developing these characters that you have an investment in them. So mm-hmm. when the horror finally happens, you feel for them. You feel empathy. Yeah, it you feels feel real. worried. It feels real. I mean, that whole first 20 minutes with the remote control uh, TV battle, and then, you know, the parents, you know, who are in their bedroom smoking pot, you know, fooling around when the, the kids come in, and, you know, there's, she's scared of, uh, you know, the sound, and he's scared. Alva Robbins is scared of the tree outside the window. That feels so real. It's not yeah. some boogeyman. It's not some weird supernatural you know it's it's really cool and craig t nelson is one of the scariest things in the movie my daughter's not afraid of me i mean come on yeah. <laughs> you're her father she's afraid of you yeah but i mean it's just such a remarkable remarkable year for especially for, for... since craig t nelson was the comedy partner of barry levinson right that's the good <laughs> people forget that yeah, people people forget that. Um, and then you know it was a year, and we talk. We'll talk about this when you hear the um, the panel. But you know, Jim Henson puts it all on the line to do a fantasy Tolkien esque fantasy movie with puppets, The Dark Crystal. I mean, that's yeah, that's crazy. I mean, he could have destroyed his career, and he buys it back. puts spends the entire family fortune to buy that and the Muppet films back. It was obviously a very good investment in retrospect, but it could have been. The end for him because you remember there was a movie which we don't talk about in the documentary in Sean where Reverend mm-hmm. Sun Young Moon he funded that whole movie uh, uh, with Gregory Peck and this all star cast and it was a huge bomb. The only thing we remember about it is the great Jerry Goldsmith score and that yeah. is you know only people like Jeff Bond and us remember that. Um, but you know, and it was a great year for teen exploitation. Um, I'm not a big fan of Porky's, but Fast Times at Richmond High is spectacular. Oh, but yeah. Ashley is. He loves Porky's. Yeah. I do love Porky's. 20th Century Fox would like to introduce you to Pee Wee and his pals. Tommy, Mickey, Tim, and the biggest man on campus. Why do they call you meat? Because it's so big? When they're not in class, they're into everything. <laughs> But what they'd like to get into most is a place called Porky's. I left my idea. Here, use this one. That's my Bible school card. Unfortunately, we can only show you the outside of Porky's. 
Because what goes on inside is not to be believed. Why the locker room? Oh, it turned me on. We'd like to show you more of the locker room, but this kind of physical education just isn't taught. We can't show you more of the shower scene. Because what they're looking at isn't watered down. They want us to look. They want us to look. Porky. You too will be back for a second look. Okay, I'm ready. I, I think that, uh, that that Porky's is uh, it, it it carries around a lot of uh, exploitation baggage, but I think it's actually a uh, a much it's um, much less an exploitation film than the poster leads you to believe. Exactly, you know, because look, that was how they marketed it, and yeah. it was uh, it was Bob Clark who directed yeah. it. Yep, uh, that's right. Who also directed. Um, uh, Christmas Black story. Christmas and Black a Christmas, Christmas story. And Christmas story. Yeah. There was a double feature for you, by the way. Yeah. Um, but you know that was, you know, there was there was some real things that were going on in that movie about those those kids and what was happening in their lives, like you know being you know physically abused by a father, um, experiencing um, you know uh, bigotry and dealing with all of that. I mean, and yeah, there's sure there's. Kim Cattrall, like having an orgasm up in the uh, in the in the attic. But when practicing for Star Trek Six for the mind melt. That's, That's right. right. But uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's it is uh, it's it's also I think its reputation is harmed a bit by the sequels, which really do then devolve into what the the teen exploitation uh, genre really is. Like Zap that year. Yeah, exactly. You're so welcome. Oh, you, thank you, Alexa. Alexa agrees with me. Thank you, Alexa. Um, <laughs> You know, I make the case in the documentary that perhaps the biggest geek movie of the year is a movie that most people don't think of as a geek movie, Diner, which is about, oh yeah, you know, it's kind of what we do on this podcast. And, you know, there's that great scene where Ellen Barkin, uh, uh, where he gets, uh, Daniel Stern gets very upset with Ellen Barkin because she's misorganized uh, his record collection and the jazz is not with the rock and roll. And she says, you know, would you put Dizzy Gillespie, you know, with the Bob Dylan? She's like, who's, you know, Dizzy it's Gillespie? It's basically with... free enterprise without Shatner. It's free it enterprise is. without Shatner. And it's the, foot, the football test. Because I think we originally even had, I mean, this is, you know, Diner was such an influence in free enterprise. We had like a football test scene, which was going to be like a Star Trek test that the yeah. Claire had to pass in order to marry Rob or something. I and mean, that one fell by the wayside in a very early draft. But I mean, that's how influenced we were by Diner. There's a little place where people gather to enjoy the banquet of life. I get a date with Carol Heathrow. She is death. It's the diner, and what they really want most isn't on the menu. Come on. And he's given Elise a football quiz. If she fails, the marriage is off. And if she passes, there's two more days to the thing. Lurch. You're a virgin, aren't you? Technically. Come on. You miserable creature. It's a slice of life. Did you turn it to such a thing? Look at With a touch of spice. Better put that sheep down. And a little love. He's admiring your horse. Were you? A few beers, a few tears, a few great years. It's a place to stop before moving on. Diner. It's open all day and cooking all night. I like Diner.
Yeah. And uh, of course, you know, it it, crea- it created an all-star cast. Uh and uh it's it's very, you know, again, Barry Levinson. Uh it's it's great and it's uh it's so it's so well written and well performed that it's uh, it almost feels like it's a real thing that they filmed rather than a performance. Yeah. No, absolutely. And then we have you know, some really terrible films and and people don't talk about this much, but uh, the posthumous making of the Trail of the Pink Panther after Oof. Peter Sellers dies is yeah. one of the most awful. Uh, they basically take outtakes from the previous movies and film, you know, a bunch of wraparounds. You know, where is Inspector Clouseau? I mean, and- it's almost the trial of the Pink Panther. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a trial to sit through. Yeah. As is the toy in which Jackie Gleason Ooh. hires Richard Pryor, uh, Pryor to uh, be a toy, aka slave, for his young son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not not good. No, no that not. one holds up. Oh. You think it holds up? <laughs> no, no, I, no, I don't think that one holds up. <laughs> okay, yeah, I was, I, yeah, you know, I, and and uh, we this is a Star Trek podcast, so we have to give props to the uh, Rob Beltran for eating Raul. And Mary Bland. You two live in the building. You must swing, right? Wrong. Good night. We're so lucky to have found each other. A typical American couple. I know. Good night, dear. Sweet dreams. With a typical American dream. And typical American problems. You are through at play liquor. Mr. Leach, I'm sure the bank has nothing to worry about. It's going to get everything that's coming to it. The bank wants to see what it's getting into. When the Blands, life was just a rat race. A cartoon mouse. Oh, great. Trigger likes you already. (laughs) We like B&D, but we don't like S&M. We met at the A&P. But they found a way to beat it. Until Mr. Raul Mendoza, como esta usted? They met a hot-blooded, emotional, crazy Chicano. I'm a hot-blooded, emotional, crazy Chicano. Eating Raul. Is it a thriller? Is it a romance? This was very wrong. Is it a tragedy? Excuse me. May I sit down? Is it a comedy? Yes, but not the type that you're used to. Eating Raul, rated R. It's the first time yeah, I ever saw Robert thing Beltran. In one sitting. That's the crazy part. And uh, <laughs> and I love I you know I used to rent that on videotape all the time. That was a great cult movie. Uh, Paul Bartel directed it, and of course. Um, Mary Warnoff was in it with Robert Beltran, and I, I, I got quite the kick out of it. I think that would make a good double feature with uh, uh, the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. Totally, Try you could crack. have a it's foodie a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We should have got a chef to talk about that one. Eating okay. Raul is 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 a, is not just a dark comedy; it's also a great satire of life in Los Angeles at that time. And yeah. you know, a, a, you know, a, a funny take on you know, in another movie, it might have been cynical. But the I, you know, how you get ahead, how you got ahead uh, at at that time, you know, by uh, uh, hitting uh, well, luring people into your apartment and then hitting them uh, over the head with a cast iron frying pan. Uh, uh, probably well, not that far from the truth. It's basically <laughs> the creation of Paramount Plus. 
So <laughs> I was so sorry uh, to um, that, you know, Joe D'Augusta on the show had told us these great stories about the year of living dangerously. And we yeah. had him in to talk to him about, and he was involved in the casting of Poltergeist and he was involved in the casting of, because he was running things over at MGM, the casting department and year of living dangerously. And we just weren't able to get it in. Uh, the Year of Living Dangerously stories uh, about Linda Hunt. So I'm so sorry. But if people are interested, they should go back and listen to that wonderful Joe D'Augusta interview that he did on the on the podcast. Um, what movie? Because, it, you know, it's funny. We talk about all these movies. But, what you know, the big successes that year were um, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Officer and a Gentleman, um, uh, 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 you know, um, Tootsie, obviously, which is a great movie. There was um, a little movie called... Uh... E.T. Well, yeah. and E.T. So of the of the of the big successes, and of course, Rocky Three was a big hit that year too. It was a good year for Sly because he did First Blood and Rocky Three. Do you have a? Do you guys, Ashley, have a favorite there? Um, yes. I mean, uh, I I mean, E.T. to me remains uh, Spielberg's masterpiece. Grownups can't see him. Only little kids can see. I remember Mike Fulmer and his team were building the miniature bikes, and I think it was Tom Santamon sculpted the kids, and he had to sculpt a little E.T. to put in the basket. Well, on his desk were these photos of E.T., and I remember looking at it going, oh, my God, this is the ugliest thing I have ever seen. No one is going to see this movie. And I was so wrong. E.T. was done in secret. The teaser was just clouds with lights. You knew that it was going to be something to do with aliens, but you had no idea what E.T. was. Even I, who'd read Starlog, I'd read everything about E.T. I didn't know what it was about. Late May, they had theatrical sneak previews around the country, and it just so happened that in Fargo, they had, they had one of these. So I went to the theater and had this experience with this movie it just blew me away. And the movie obviously hadn't opened widely yet, so nobody else had seen it. And I'm sitting here trying to tell people like what it was that I'd seen and experienced. You just couldn't do it. People looked at you like you were like you were crazy. We went over and stood in line at the Cinerama Dome with everybody else for three hours to see E.T. People were screaming, they were crying, they were applauding. It was the discovery of that summer. I'm getting chills even thinking about it. It was one of the most magically transporting movies I'd ever seen. No matter who you were or what ethnicity you were, you could see yourself in that story. That's what made E.T. so special. Like when Elliot takes off on the bike, that's not Elliot on the bike. That was me on the bike. That was me trying to get E.T. home. That's the gift that Steven Spielberg possesses. My acting teacher, who was this Cuban emigre who spoke very strangely, uh, <laughs> uh, had seen a movie that changed his life. He said, I've seen the best performance by an actor ever. It is the E.T. <laughs> E.T., 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 be good. And I remember being so excited because E.T. Uh, e. totally transported me, and I bought it. I 100% bought that this was an alien creature. You know, I know Carlo Rombaldi designed it, and an army of technicians brought him to life. For my acting teacher, who was my god at the time, they had brought to the screen the greatest performance ever. <laughs> Steven asked me during the filming, he said, Dee, they're already asking me about doing a sequel. He said, what do you think? And I said, I think you should leave it the classic it's going to be. I'll be right here. And I, I mean that in the most classical 
sense of the word. It was the film that really, I think, look, as, as great as his previous work was, including Raiders, obviously, E.T. Was the, was the moment for me that, that Spielberg demonstrated here in every phase of the game, I am so great at this, even in small moments, it's going to be perfect. Even little things like a shot selection, a cut from one thing to another, you know, and I've talked about this before, but, you know, Elliot falling to his knees to, to, to say goodbye to E.T. and cutting to D. Wallace Stone falling to her knees and mimicking yeah. that gesture when the entire theme of the movie is about learning how other people feel. Um, having the brains to say to John Williams, you write me this beautiful music for, you know, the, the, the bike ride through the sky, through all of that, and I'm going to make the rest of it work, right? Yeah. Like, that to me is just, is inspired. That is a filmmaker at the height of his power. And on top of that, he's dealing with kids. He but has all no go go ahead. I'm I was sorry. just gonna say, and he also has the presence of mind to like, and it's just it's again one of those subtle things where because this movie was in the kids' point of view, he keeps the camera down at their level. Yeah. yeah. Right? Almost to the point where at times yeah, like he peanuts are like Charlie Brown's teacher. Yes, exactly. Uh but it's also Spielberg at at uh, at the height of his restraint and yes. his uh, economy. Um he had been slapped down by his uh, 1941, and he came back swinging, showing his uh, his lean, mean side to do Raiders. And right after that, he does E.T., which is the the grand orchestration of all his technique and knowledge and heart poured into this thing, and it's absolutely a beautiful work. Yeah, no, that's 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 your absolute hundred percent, and uh, I got to say, just you know, a, such a such a spectacular spectacular year, um, and so many great movies, and I'm so glad we can honor it and shine a spotlight on it in the new special uh, four part series, uh, Grace Geek Year Ever 1982. Um, are you are you surprised these movies stand the test of time? Uh, that so many of these movies we still talk about today. Why do you think that is, Ashley? <laughs> we, so we, we lost, we lost part of that. Froze just a little Can bit. Can you repeat the question, please? I froze. Yeah, I I was it's saying that. Do, Let's talk about the film. Are, are you are you surprised that so many of these films have stood the test of time after all these years? I mean, how many movies from this year are going to be people are going to be talking about forty years from now? Uh, very, 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 very few. And look, I think that it's just a testament to what we already knew about 1982. It wasn't that it was, hey, there were a lot of movies that did really well that year. It, the story of that year was not the box office, although I guess it sort of was. Like The story of that year was that it was great movie, movie after great movie after great movie, sometimes mm -hmm. on the same honking weekend, man. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. that these things were just coming out, and, and to the point where 11-year-old me thought that, oh, this is what every summer is supposed to be like. And it's just not P.S. No. Um, all, those movies that we're talking about, any one of them, right, you could, they would be worthy of, of discussion in a class to take them apart, you know, on a story level, how they were shot, how they were made, um, the music. Like, literally, everybody is just, for whatever reason, in 1982, everybody was firing all, on all thrusters in 1981 and then just released it in 1982. That's it was why the, it was the full blooming of the seeds that were planted in uh 77. Yeah. Uh, with New Hollywood exploding and really turning out 
like we said, one classic after another. And yeah. I, 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 you know, I'm jaded because I don't think of them as, you know, 40-year-old movies. That's oh. the problem. I, I still remember them as when they were new and when I was new. And that's a long time ago. So just like Genesis. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. what I feel is when the world was new. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we got we managed to go on so long. I don't think we're gonna have time to share our GalaxyCon panel in this episode. I think we're going to have to save that for uh, Deck 78. Um, but, uh, you know, this was uh, this was great. And um, obviously, we're so appreciative to you guys for being a part of uh, this Kickstarter. And I'm very excited to announce what comes next for the Trexperts. Um, next month... Oh, Jim. <laughs> thanks, Darren. Next <laughs> month, uh, we'll be launching a, a new Kickstarter for a very special Trexperts project where the Trexperts joined by none other than Rart Meyer Burnett and a gaggle of galactic stars gaggle. Because, okay. you know, a track, uh, you can imagine some of the people that have been on our show, some people haven't. And we're going to take you on a tour of the future as we go on a bus, we christen the Enterprise to the many locations where Star Trek filmed over 60 years. We're going to go from Bronson Caves to Vasquez Rocks, Golden Gate Park to the Valley of Fire. We're going to take you on the ultimate trip, not to be confused with 2001, as only the <laughs> Trexperts can, with our trademark mix of expertise, humor, and dare I say, I'm going to make this word happen if it kills me, Trekucation. So keep listening to the Trexperts and social channels for details. Starting next month, we're going to be rolling out our Kickstarter for this very, because it's something we can't do on the show because it's so visual yeah. because it's all locations. We're going to go to these great locations and we're going to have all these great guests and it's going to be hugely ambitious just in time to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the making of the cage. So we hope a lot of you out there who supported 1982 or who didn't and wish they had will, um, uh, jump into our uh, Trexperts. Uh, our documentary. We're, we're going to be coming up. We're going to be coming up to another edit here because we need to repeat that last thing because you froze. <laughs> I did. I froze. Yeah, you Not froze. like Victor Bono as King Tut, but more <laughs> like um, Michael and Sarah, or we could say Otto Preminger or Eli Wallach as <laughs> Mr. Freeze. I am Mr. Freeze. Freeze. I, I know that reference because of the Batman animated series, but do go on. Chill, chill. Okay. So again, we'll be launching this very special Trexperts Kickstarter next month. Um, so keep an eye out because uh, this is a, a way to go. Take the podcast. Wait, let's come up with a catchphrase. It's the podcast and beyond. It's the, well, that's the black hole. No, we, we're not going to go beyond. We'll, we'll boldly gonna... pod where no one has cast before. Uh, <laughs> guys, cast what you, no wait, you got before. something for us here? <laughs> this is terrible. Need, you know what? We need maple whiskey, honestly. To fuel the uh, the creative endeavors, but um, but we're really we're really excited. And of course, hey, it was it was great to have you guys on. But before we let you go, do you have any 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 thoughts, questions? Freezing, freezing. I'm frozen. Sure. I'm frozen again. <laughs> I, I want to ask one these, more time. I want to ask these guys before before we wrap up if they have any questions for us while they're on the show. Well, they're on the Trexperts. <laughs> Let's try this when, again. Any questions? Yes, I have a question. Before you freeze again, I have a question. When was the moment that you realized that 1982 was the greatest geek year ever? Uh, that's a good question. 
I think it was in 1982. <laughs> I think towards the end of the year, I just thought this is a pretty special, special year. But it was certainly, you know, it was certainly in the 90s. I think it became clear after we suffered through so many bad movie years in the 80s, worse yep. in the 90s, and and even worse in the two in the, in the aughts. That I look back and said, you know, 82, and it's something that we've celebrated at Comic Con as panels. Uh, Darren and Ashley and me and our group have done panels. I did something at the American Cinematheque. I think the first time I really put it in print was in Geek Magazine back in the, um, we did a, a, a big cover story. And then we curated that wonderful film festival at the Cinematheque. And uh, it's something that I've always wanted to do something with because uh, it is a really, it is a really special year. And we've only touched on some of the movies um you know beyond the geek films stuff like the verdict i absolutely love my favorite love year yeah. um missing mm -hmm. costa garvis is missing so so this many is. so many great movies um i know scott mance uh who's one of the producers a good friend um would argue it's the best year for movies ever i don't agree with that but i do think it's the greatest geek year ever and a great appreciation to roger lay who directed and edited and did such a wonderful job and was such a terrific uh partner as as well and uh we're so happy that darren was a part of uh uh, uh offering his insights into um 1982 as well i i just made it before uh before another interview had to be done it was great <laughs> but he brought his usual insights and and intelligence to uh um you have uh, a singular wit captain but he will be <laughs> in our Trexpers project as we boldly go to yes. star trek locations across the globe which will be it's going to be crazy it's going to be yeah. absolutely crazy um because we wanted to have the same feel as the as the podcast where you know it's i i, I joke it's kind of like curb your enthusiasm meets star trek because yeah. it's going to be entirely unscripted. And um, we have some amazing guests lined up from the yeah. Star Trek world that are going to be dropping in to pay us a visit. And uh, so if people like the podcast, they're going to love, they're going to, they're going to love this documentary that we're doing. Um, what about you, Julian? Any, any, any questions? It can be about 82 or just about Star Trek uh, about, uh, or, or the podcast. No questions in general. Although I, I wanted to say that, um, when I saw that this documentary for 82 was coming out, it was just one of those things where it hits you and you go, well, of course, because it is. I mean, that year was, it was an embarrassment of riches as, as far as genre movies and, and everything else that was coming out. And uh, it was a, a core point for me where I was forming core friendship groups uh, in high school and um, going to those movies every weekend. Um, and, Yes, it, you know, it'd be fair to, to expect, you know, you get you get into the next few years and you're expecting the same type of stuff coming out and, and, and it doesn't. Right. <laughs> As the years go by, you, you get together with your friends to go Star see Trek a movie, you've read about it in Star, Star Trek yeah. 3. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, yeah, so... You start seeing things uh, as you're reading more about getting into, you know, the how the how the sausage is made for movies, and and you go to the movie and and you go, what is going on? Why did they film it that way? What's up with the light? What's up with you know? It's like well, you know, it doesn't look right. People are going to get on our case about the Star Trek Three again, so I'm going to rephrase that. Conan the Barbarian, 1982. Conan the Destroyer, 1984. Come yeah, on, yeah, exactly. We aptly exactly. named Conan the Destroyer. Destroyed the <laughs> franchise, yeah. 
that's, that's right. That's right. Well, we want to remind everyone that uh, Greatest Geek Year Ever 1982 will premiere on the CW Saturday, July 8th at 8 p.m. with a special encore presentation on Tuesday, July 11th. And we'll hear every Saturday night, all July long. And you can join... Uh, us at uh, Comic-Con in San Diego, where we'll be bringing you a special sneak peek behind the scenes of 1982, followed by Inglorious Trexperts Live with Darren, Ashley, and myself as we celebrate 25 years of free enterprise with Robert Meyer Burnett. So that will be a lot of fun. He's going to be bringing some very special surprises for that panel, um, which will be happening at Comic-Con. And the week following, Ashley, Darren, and myself will be at Raleigh... <laughs> North Carolina, where we will be doing a multitude of panels about Star Trek and other things, and also uh, previewing the upcoming episode of 1982. And we'll be joined there by Barry Boswick from Megaforce, Laura Banks from Star Trek II, and the great Charles DeLazarica, who'll be talking and sharing his insights about Blade Runner. So you don't want to miss that in Raleigh, North Carolina. So we hope you'll uh, you'll you'll join us for that, and of course we'll be in Austin Labor Day weekend, where we'll be laboring to bring you some great panels as well. Um, and uh, you, of course, can rate us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts, or follow us on social at Inglorious Trek and Inglorious Trexperts, or 1982 Movies if you're interested in following Greatest Geek Year Ever. For those of you who can't get enough of the Trexperts, subscribe at trexpertsplus.com, and you'll get our exclusive Deck 78 podcast before anyone. And it's really been on fire lately. We had the great Kenny Wall on uh, just recently, and we did a terrific episode on Six Million Dollar Man that I'm very proud of as well. So um, if you want to get those before anybody, you want to subscribe to Trexpert Plus. We're also adding the new Trexpert Screening Room where we do um, virtual screenings of films that we love or maybe just like or like to make fun of. Nah, this is all about the uh, the love here on the Trexpert. So it's not like we're going to watch any of those. Um, but, uh, but guys, this is going to be a big chance for you because I'm going to do the outro, but I'm going to need your help. So we're going to do clap your hands. You guys are fans of the podcast. You know, you know how it goes. So I'm going to say, so until then, on behalf of myself, Ashley, Darren, Julian, and Brian, keep on on trucking in gloriously. Of course. And Darren, cue the ship. Engage.
moving on.